Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, LARB's editor-at-large, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. You're pointing at me. I was. So that I know who I am. Uh, (laughs) You are the managing editor. You are. It's true. (laughs) We have a packed show today. Yeah, this is going to be a busy day for us. Yeah. Okay, our first guest is Magdalena Edwards. She is a writer and a translator from Spanish and Portuguese. And she wrote a piece for us about her experience translating Clarice Lispector's novel, The Chandelier. And Um, all the creepy things her editor, Benjamin Moser, did along the way. Yes. Creepy, unethical. Yeah, that's probably a better better (laughs) word for it. And there were a few things set off mic that were quite interesting. But the things on mic were also very interesting. Yeah. And we would encourage listeners to go read the piece. It's up right now on the LA Review of Books. And it it's about translation, the process of translation, but also who gets credit for what, whose work is valued, whose work is essentially thrown away, and who gets to lay claim over an author's legacy. Yeah, it's a really, it packs a punch in a short amount of space. And it's really like very powerful. Yeah, and, a, and in a sort of a quiet way, actually. Yeah. Yes, so that's number one. Then we're going to hear our conversation with Jess Rao about his most recent book, White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination. Which I... You loved. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I did. I thought this book was very thought-provoking for me just by pointing out whiteness. And actually, since I've read it, I've definitely been reading books in a different way. Yes, me too. I Also, actually, the night after our conversation with Jess, I went to go see the new Tarantino movie. Uh, mm. And before the Tarantino movie, there was a little cartoon that the theater showed. It seemed to be a cartoon from the 40s. And it was a little dog guarding this flock of white sheep. And there was a black wolf that was essentially trying to break into the enclosure. And, you know, sort of funny, madcap, silly things ensue with the wolf, like, dressing up as a sheep. and But the dog is insistent in keeping the wolf out. And our conversation with Jess really colored seeing this cartoon, which I think to me was quite obviously about protecting whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I had wished that the entire theater had read the book so that we could all be aware of what we were watching. But, you know, they hadn't. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they had. Mm. (laughs) Probably not. Anyway, so yes, really changed the way to understand sort of just even the slightest kind of cultural production that we have is quite often related to whiteness and our understanding of what that is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a full slate. So It's a full slate. Let's get to it. Let's get to it. We have Magdalena Edwards in the studio with us today. Magdalena is a writer, actor, and translator from Spanish and Portuguese. Her work has appeared in the Boston Review, the Paris Review Daily, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Millions, Rattle, The Critical Flame, and Words Without Borders, as well as Chile's leading newspaper, El Mercurio. She holds a PhD in comparative literature from UCLA and a BA in social studies from Harvard. Magdalena is here to talk to us about her latest piece that she wrote for us, for LARB. The piece is called Benjamin Moser and the Smallest Woman in the World. Hi, Magdalena. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. So this piece about your working relationship with Benjamin Moser, in part, and also about translating Clarice Suspector, and more broadly, has been generating so much attention. And I read it and was just completely transfixed and also really stunned, or I had a lot of admiration for you coming out with this piece at this time. So Magdalena, this piece is partially about your experience of working with the writer and translator Benjamin Moser on uh, a translation of Kalisha Spector's novel, The Chandelier, among many other things. And it is a really riveting piece. But just in case someone hasn't read it who's listening, can you just really quickly sum up what you wrote about? I wrote about my experience as one of Clarice Lispector's translators into English. She's been translated into English since the 60s by many people, including Elizabeth Bishop, Gregory Rabassa, Earl Fitz, Elizabeth Lowe. 
Alexis Levitin. There's a whole new stable of translators with the New Directions Translation Project, helmed by Benjamin Moser, who published a biography of Lispector in English, the only one in English. Uh, it came out in 2009 with Oxford. And I had some trouble as the translation process went from my very intimate experience working on the text on my own to the next phases of publishing. And when that began to unfold, and I, I described that in the essay, I was very surprised by what was happening. And my intuition told me that something was quite off. And as somebody who has a background in academia and in research, I wanted to figure it out. Mm-hmm. It just didn't make sense. Okay, so describe what happened exactly. Well, I get into it in my piece. Essentially, what I thought was going to become a revision process, working with an editor who edits all of these new translations, his name is prominently featured on all of the books, became something very different. Suddenly, I was told that my work was not competent, that everything that I had turned in was not good enough and that it would have to be rewritten. Every line would have to be rewritten. And that essentially I was being dismissed from the project. And that made no sense to me. I I became very confused, very flustered. I had a contract. This was my first translation project book length. So I began to try to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. And I was met with what I didn't expect, which was no conversation really. This, this became sort of the final word that was it. And it just didn't make sense to me. How did you receive word that this was it? It's in the essay. I, I yeah. received an email. And I tried to have a phone call and that didn't happen. And I should backtrack. I wrote two reviews of new translations of the Spectre for the New Directions Project. I wrote two different reviews for the millions. One on Moser's translation of The Hour of the Star and the other on Katrina Dodson's translations of the complete stories. So I thought going into the project that I had knew kind of what I was getting myself into mm-hmm. because I had researched it quite a lot for those each of those pieces. And also, as I described in my essay, Moser and I met many, many years ago in Rio, and we were both researching Lispector and writing about her in different ways, and many people do. She's, of course, a respected, beloved, genius artist that people have written about in in many languages, and she's been translated into many languages. You know, I was reading this other essay by Katrina Dodson about translating the Spectre, and she was describing this relationship that she had with uh, her a former translator of her work and, and kind of feeling like they were both, she describes it as vampires, trying to suck out the essence of this person. And that it's a different relationship being a translator, let's say, than being a fiction writer, because you are in service of someone else's work. And so there's a competitiveness between translators, possibly, and a camaraderie. But this story with Moser goes beyond that. But is there, because you've worked in translation, is that something you recognize? Was this relationship somewhat familiar to you in terms of like a subtle rivalry about bringing someone else's words to light? It's really interesting you bring this up because Lispector herself was a translator. And I've been doing a lot of research lately in writing about her work as a translator and her interest in the relationship between translation and performance. And she writes about that in many ways, many different ways in her fiction and nonfiction. And the idea that the translator is a kind of performer who takes on the text like an actor would a role, right, is interesting in this competitive kind of nature where you could imagine this person plays Othello, that person plays Othello, right? This person plays the lead of, of Tennessee Williams or of a Sarah Rule play or whatever, and this other person. And there, there is a lot of competition. Actors, right? A lot of actors talk about acting as a sport. And so I think translation, you can see it also in that way as a sport, as a competitive sport. I was coming to this project from a cocoon of translation kindness from graduate school. I did my PhD at UCLA, Michael Heim was my mentor at UCLA as a translator. He had been taught by Gregory Rabassa, who translated Lispector. He was the first translator of a Lispector novel into English. I came up through this UCLA cocoon of camaraderie and support and had actually met Idra Novi, who translates Lispector too, many, many, many years ago at a grad student conference. And then my other mentor is Paulo Henrique who's a translator poet who's translated all of Elizabeth Bishop into Portuguese, translated many other writers. He teaches at Pukihiu, and he's an incredibly generous mentor of many, many people, including other Lispector translators. And so that's where I was coming from. 
I wasn't coming from a cutthroat competitive sport mm-hmm. position. I had to learn a new mode as things started to unravel. And mm-hmm. why do you think the essay has struck such a chord with people? Because many people have probably had the experience of working with someone who wasn't so generous, wanted to take control. But it also seems within the translation community, it seems especially to have really riled people up. So what do you think was the the thing that spoke to people about it? Well, I think there's multiple angles. One is that when you have a writer who's really revered, there also is territoriality around that writer. Who is the biographer? How do they compete? Who is the scholar? Is is the biographer in academia or are they outside? There are all of these politics. And Lispector garners that in every language she's written about, right? In Brazil, there's some of that. I mean, there's a lot of collegiality, but of course, you know, I, I discovered this first, she wrote that, that's not accurate. This was on a different level. And as I began to research what was happening, why had things gone awry in this terrible way, I had kind of the, the rug pulled out from under me. I began to understand that a lot of different people seemed to know different things, that this was kind of a sense that, was, that existed in the, in, the, in the ether, right? But no one had really, except for the two articles that I quote in my essay, one that came out in 2010 and another in 2018 published by Brazilian academics, not much had been really written about it in a very clear way. And so it's kind of like one of those situations, and we've had many of them where people say, oh, a lot of people had heard about this, or, oh, I had heard about this, or that kind of thing. But I think what happens and extends beyond my particular situation, sometimes we benefit from generosity or we give generosity, and we give people the benefit of the doubt, and people have a lot of trust. And then we realize, oh, maybe that wasn't the right thing to do, or maybe I wasn't fully seeing what was in front of me. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely right that this is a situation that has happened many, many times. I mean, there are documented cases, but also a lot of colleagues have said to me who work in different languages with different writers, I turned in a manuscript, suddenly I was taken off the project. The next thing you know, this other translator took over the text. There's no way they could have translated the novel from scratch in that short period of time. So I began also to understand that the ethics of people getting credit, people's work getting sort of taken over, the baton being passed, was something that, that a lot of people wanted to talk about. I have a friend who's an art historian, and she was telling me about situations where Professor X was known to have taken over a certain graduate student's work and then published it. I have another friend who is a tenure-track professor who told me a story about having uh, their manuscript basically co-opted from the digitized version available online where your dissertation is there for anyone to read. That was taken by someone of prominence who already has tenure, et cetera, edited and published. And my friend was working very diligently on revising their manuscript and suddenly this other book comes out and they have to redo their, their project because no publisher is going to publish a book that already exists. That's one of the things that comes up in one of the comments for, of my essay is a, a publisher who was interested in publishing Nadja Gottlieb's biography of the Spectre, which came out many, many years ago. And that publisher says, when I realized most of what was in there already exists in the Moser biography that came out with Oxford in 2009, I realized, why would I publish a book that pretty mm-hmm. much already exists? So, and it exists relatively close to the other, the Brazilian biography. That's seems. the argument, right. Yeah. That's the argument that these two academics make in their in their articles. Right. That Moser had borrowed certain aspects of the biography for his own. Yes. Without crediting anybody. How nervous yeah. about publishing this essay were you? I was very nervous. I was very nervous. Because the other thing that struck me as all of this was unfurling was that no one had really talked about it openly and I couldn't understand how that was possible. And the more I learned, the more that filled me with a certain kind of dread. That being said, what's interesting is also that Lispector was one of the first women in Brazil to go to law school. And she writes about this in one of her cronicas. And she says that she was always told that she would be a good lawyer because she really is in favor of justice. And she didn't go into the law 
as a writer, I think she really gets into complicated situations, ethical moments, awkward moments, unpleasant moments. Mm -hmm. The chandelier is filled with that. You have a main character named Virginia who has an older brother, Daniel, who pretty much uh, hazes her. He bullies her. He insults her. He torments her. They create this thing called the Society of Shadows. And Daniel is, of course, the president. And he sends her on these awful missions. And they're children. And she's, she's very scared to do a lot of these things. But she does them because her older brother tells her to. And she wants to please him. And so translating the chandelier was very painful because of that. Mm. I ended up doing a one-woman show about a translator named Madalena who's translating the chandelier who fights with Lispector because she feels that the main character, Virginia, is treated too terribly, that the outcome of her life is too tragic. Mm-hmm. So what's interesting for me is that the meta nature of all of this, which is the kind of writer Lispector is, she herself was a translator as well. So as a translator, for me, I love translating people who also translate or translated because I feel that there's a kind of implicit understanding of the complexities of translation. No translation can be a copy of the original. So all translations will have faults or mistakes Mm -hmm. or things that could have been a little different, maybe a little better. But that's also what's fun about translation, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. One of the things that really struck me about your essay, and I should credit Sarah Mesley, who is our former humanities editor, with, I think, initiating this conversation before I had ever thought of it, but about the emotions that go into editing, how Sarah, I think, initially had put it, but also the emotions that go into writing. And I I think that doesn't, that's not discussed very often. And so I wanted to ask you, what were some of the emotions throughout this process? And how do you feel now? Like what, what are you going through now? Do you mean the out in the world? The process of writing the the essay. The process of writing the essay, but also the, the experience of handing in a manuscript, getting this feedback, then getting, as you said, a sense that something was wrong. Right. So relying on your intuition to, to sort of move forward with that and dig deeper into something, which I think belies an instinct that not many people have, which is to take that sense seriously and take it as a as an impetus to do work. But yeah. And sort of where you've ended up or where you feel it. Yeah, I know that question, question makes a lot of sense. When everything started to fall apart, I initially was extremely confused. Mm. And then I realized that I'd been really naive. (laughs) I'd been super naive in many ways. And I mean, I knew before but hadn't experienced the way publishing can be Mm -hmm. Darwinian plus, right? So I almost walked away from the whole thing because translation, as everyone knows, is truly underpaid. The amount of work that you do to translate a novel is enormous. I worked on this novel. I can't even tell you the number of hours. If I calculate the wage, it's pitiful. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not a minimum wage of any kind. Now, of course, if your book does well, but translation, you don't go into translation to make money. That's not why I did this project. I came in because I love Lispector's work. I respect her work. I admire her work. I love Portuguese. I love Brazil. That was it. So I almost walked away. But when I began to research what was happening, or not not what was happening, but what was what was in front of me, what was in front of kind of in a way all of us, the whole community, Mm -hmm. but maybe we weren't connecting the dots, or maybe we didn't want to dig further because in a way, when it's something's happening in your community that's kind of awry, we kind of don't want to believe that something could be so wrong. Right. I thought to myself, wait a second. I have to find out more. And I I have a responsibility here. You know, I see things. I have to follow that trail. And I spoke to other people. And I'm not going to get into details on that because really I've written what I have to write and it's for other people to tell what they have to tell. Mm -hmm. But I found out other things and I thought, whoa, we have to step up. And so I thought to myself, you know, that it was very important to stick it out and to do the best I could, and to keep researching, and to keep learning, and to keep asking questions discreetly, and also showing up places and listening. Hmm. I mean, I get into that in my essay too, where I hadn't been to Brazil in 10 years, 
And I went in 2018 for Braza. And there were 13 papers given at Braza on Clarice Lispector. And I, I couldn't attend all of them because some of them overlapped in terms of time. But I went to as many of them as I could and sat and listened. And there were several about translation, her being translated into English, Clarice becoming a world literature phenomenon. There are people in Brazil writing about the fact that now she's been sort of co-opted and turned into something that's not a Brazilian writer. Mm. And she is a Brazilian writer and she considered herself to be. So all of these things. And I just listen. What, do, what are people saying? What are their positions? Who are they exciting? and trying to learn. And so I began to realize that there was a, a much larger story afoot, that I was a tiny part of a much larger story. And so that that's kind of, you know, why I kept going. And now I feel that, I feel relieved that the translation community, the publishing community, other creative people, other people in general, for whom this idea of having work that you do not credited, right? And that happens, I think, almost maybe to all of us in different ways in life, in our professional lives, et cetera, have responded with, with support. And I think the essay brings up a lot of really important questions for our society in general, right? Who gets thanked for their devotion? Who gets credit for their work? And also, how is it that we don't value team sports, team play as much as we value this idea of the lone genius who's discovered this thing, who's the only one, who's the singular expert. And I keep asking this question to myself and I talk about it with colleagues and friends. And I think as a society, we need to ask those questions because nobody does anything alone. They just don't. We all know that. And we like to proclaim certain people to be superstars and Clarice herself plays with that in her novel, The Hour of the Star, with this young girl from the Northeast named Maccabea who wants to be a movie star. She wants to be Marilyn Monroe. So I feel now very relieved and very happy that these conversations are happening, and I think they need to continue. Well, that's great. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me. I love the piece. Thank you so much. Thank you, Magdalena. Magdalena is the author of Benjamin Moser and the Smallest Woman in the World. It is up now at the Los Angeles Review Book. This is the LARB Radio Hour on KPFK 90.7 FM, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We were speaking with Magdalena Edwards, and now our conversation with Jess Rao, author of White Flights. We have Jess Rao with us here today. Jess Rao is the author of the novel, Your Face is Mine, and the story collections, The Train to Lo Wu and Nobody Ever Gets Lost. He lives in New York, though he is now in Vermont, and his latest book is called White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination. Thank you so much, Jess, for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Jess, I wanted first to congratulate you on this book because I think it's really powerful and there's so many brilliant ideas in here. But I wanted to start off by talking about a term that you used in the introduction. I felt like this term or the idea of what this could be was some of the animating force behind the book. And that term mm -hmm. is reparative writing. So maybe you could explain what in your mind that is and how, you know, is that idea kind of one of the binding forces of this book? Yeah. Reparative writing is absolutely one of the binding forces of the book, although I'll confess that I came to it sort of rather late in the process. I had already written a lot of the essays, and just sort of the term reparative writing just sort of jumped out at me as if it was something that had been sort of dwelling in the back of my mind, but I hadn't quite articulated to myself. The introduction was going to be called the question of reparative writing, which is really what I'm trying to raise the question of, you know, is such a thing possible? So the immediate idea for the term comes from a very famous essay in literary criticism by Eve kosofsky Sedgwick called Paranoid Reading and Reparative Reading. And it has a very funny subtitle, which is something like, you're so paranoid, you probably think this essay is about you or something <laughs> yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah. um, so basically what Sedgwick does in that essay is she talks about two different ways of reading texts, either the way that sort of goes back to Foucault, 
of essentially reading text in a paranoid way that is to find out what they expose about the power structure or what they expose about sort of hidden hegemonic structures of oppression, et cetera, et cetera. That's sort of the way that she was educated as a critic and as a queer theorist in the 1970s and 80s. And she wants to contrast that with reparative reading, which is a much more, how shall I put this? It comes out of affect theory, and it's basically attending to the reader's emotional response to the text and the possibility of having what she calls essentially a depressive response to the text. That is, something about the text depresses you or you feel sad, you feel melancholy. And so she's drawing on this notion of reparative thinking that comes from the psychoanalyst Melanie Klein, who talks about it as a stage in childhood where children are first able to see that they've harmed someone and that essentially makes them feel sad. It makes them feel depressed. And they ask themselves, is there anything I can do about this? I think the important thing for me to emphasize is that it begins with a state of sadness, you know, verging on depression or actually segueing into depression. And it begins with a question, is there some way I can repair this rather than a kind of bold statement of, yes, reparations are possible and this is what we're going to do. So in other words, it's not reparative writing in the way that I'm talking about it in White Flights is not a 10-point plan. It's a question. Is such a thing possible? And if it were possible, what would it look like? And in this book, you're addressing specifically race and whiteness and, you know, the construction of whiteness in fiction. So what would that look like? You know, is your book an example of reparative writing? Is that what you were hoping it would be? I'm definitely hoping that it is that it is an example of, you know, a way of asking the questions, but also a way of, I mean, hopefully what I'm trying to do is think through what would the strategies be? What is reparative reading? What is, what are ways of, as writers, as white writers, what are ways of approaching questions of race, not in a defensive way, not in a guilty way, not even necessarily in a self-critical way so much as a consciously reparative way. And so there's at least two dimensions of that. One dimension is introspection. But I also want to emphasize that another dimension has to be activism, has to be literary activism. In other words, you have to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, which means you actually you need to be, as a writer, You need to be out there in the community supporting writers of color, engaging with writers of color, supporting students of color, and advocating for a more just and equitable publishing industry. Issues of power and issues of money always have to be on the table. Even when we're talking about the literary concept of reparative writing, we always have to attend to power and money as the forces that make the world work. So you are also a fiction writer. This book is a book of literary criticism and a bit about your own personal history. But how did you come to this subject? How did you become convinced that this was your next project? Yeah, it's a great question. And I didn't, you know, I don't think I ever intended it to be quite as much of the next project as it turned out to be. Initially, I had written a bunch of magazine essays and sort of literary critical essays, and I bundled them together and I sent them to Grey Wolf. And I was sort of hoping to have a kind of a book that basically already existed, and I needed to just do a little tweaking here and a little tweaking there, like a, like a short story collection, and just get it out into the world. And the more I thought about it and the more I worked with Fiona McRae, who acquired the book at Grey Wolf, I realized that it needed to be a project of its own, a kind of sui generis project. And that it would just need a lot more work. It needed a lot more thinking and needed a lot more exploration. And, you know, when I realized that, I sort of had a a kind of oh no moment. It was sort of like staring into the void and the void stares into you. When I realized exactly how much work, um, how deep I had gotten myself into, how much of a project this was going to be, you know, and then I embraced it. You know, I should say I have a novel under contract with Echo Books. And my editor there, Megan Lynch, was extremely supportive of this project when I first signed the contract in 2015 and really believed in it, believed it was something I needed to do. And she's been extremely patient. 
as my novel has been on the back burner a little bit. It was very much an interdependent project of myself and my agent and Megan Lynch, my fiction editor and my nonfiction editors at Grey Wolf, just to give myself the time and the space to make it work. Just to follow up on that, one of the things that you write about is the fear around approaching a subject like this, particularly for a white male cis writer. Yeah. So it sounds like you had support, obviously, but did you experience that fear when you were sort of beginning this book, when you were staring into that abyss? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I have to say that my last book, Your Face and Mine, is a book about race. It's a sort of speculative fiction about race in America. And so in a way I had been through, when I published that book, I had been through that process of being a white male writer, writing about race and trying to go out there in the world and have honest, unflinching conversations. And what I experienced when I went on book tour for Your Face and Mine in 2014 was that in general, people were a lot more open. The people that I met were a lot more open and a lot more frank, but also in some ways welcoming than I had feared. I would never have been able to write this book without having written that book first, because I had already sort of done a lot of the basic reading and a lot of the basic thinking. That book is also very autobiographical. And that led very naturally into this project. But, you know, when you take on a work of intellectual history and criticism and also autobiographical essays, yeah, there are lots of additional fears that come in, fears about, you know, not having read some crucial text that you should have read, or in the case of writing about your family, exposing something that's going to make members of your family very uncomfortable, making some kind of factual claim that, you know, somebody in my family would dispute. I think that self-consciousness and self-doubt and anxiety about being a fraud is something that all writers face. And in my case, it was, it's very intense. It can be very intense. But I also, I always try to foreground that and use that anxiety and self-consciousness as material. You know, my writing tends to be, tends to try to make use of anxiety, I guess you would say, and sort of think about it and sort of cogitate about it on the page a little bit. I'm almost trying to sort of process that through the writing process itself, if that makes any sense. Yeah. One point you make in this book that I'll just say in a base way, basically, is that if a writer is, even if there's obvious racial implications to a story, if a writer is white, use an example of Amy Bender's story in the introduction that so obviously could be interpreted about slavery, but that your students never pick up on that aspect when you teach it. And there's an amazing essay in here about MFA programs and Gordon Lish and the way that a tendency in MFA programs has been to push in a really simplified way, let's say style over substance in some sense. Yeah. I mean, and mm-hmm. kind of treat whiteness as a homogenous category that doesn't have to be examined. Yeah. So I guess, you know, through that, guys, I'm wondering how you went about choosing some of the writers in this book, because if everything is up for grabs, basically, if so much that's been written by white writers could be said to be about race in a kind of subtextual way or not even, you know, how do you, right. how did you choose? Because we never think of the category of Anglo-American of fiction. Yeah, exactly. White American fiction just is American fiction right. in most cases. It was the most difficult part of writing was deciding what to bring in and what to leave out. There were so many writers who I could say so much about them, people like Ann Beattie, who I didn't get to include because, you know, at a certain point, the essays got long and detailed. And I just couldn't, you know, I didn't want to exhaust the reader with examples. And I also, as I wrote these essays, I sort of tried to let the argument take me in a certain way and then lead me to somebody that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of before, like Dorothy Allison for example, who's a really amazing writer to write about in terms of whiteness because her subject matter or the way that she's usually thought of is as a writer about class, a writer about the working class, the white working class in the South and white poverty in the South. 
But her career, as she says very openly in some of her essays, her writing was really inspired by people like Tony Cade Bambara and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison. She was really inspired by the kind of radical feminist truth-telling of the black women writers of the 1970s. And that shows in her work. She's able to be open about shame and self-consciousness. You know, the title of her first book is Trash, in a way that most white writers are, are not. So, you know, for me, it was letting the essays take me certain places. And many of the writers, really, I would say, that I started off intending to write about weren't the writers that actually wound up in the book. For example, with David Foster Wallace, I knew that I had to write about David Foster Wallace somehow, but I couldn't figure out how for a long time. And it was very difficult to figure out how to approach his influence and his voice and his self-consciousness in the context of whiteness until I stumbled on his book about hip-hop music that he wrote in 1990 Mm -hmm. with Mark Lehner called Signifying Rappers. And once I read that book, his thinking about whiteness was totally open to me. And I knew that that's, you know, that I had to like construct an essay around that. You know, there were a lot of sort of twists and turns in the process. I never thought I would write about Don DeLillo, for example. And then it just became obvious that in the context of writing about shame and writing about Gordon Lish, who was Don DeLillo's best friend and sort of aesthetic ally, although they never explicitly worked together, Lish tried to sort of bring Don DeLillo into his fold and DeLillo rejected him. But they're really working on two different versions of white shame, essentially, and the erasure of ethnic difference and the erasure of class difference. Just as a quick yes, pause, please, please. would you mind explaining how you understand white shame? Because I thought that was one of the more or most interesting parts of the book. Shame in general, I well, find thank you. interesting and useful. I think some people would disagree with me. I think we should have more of it around. But <laughs> <laughs> would you just explain how these writers engage with white shame and what that is? Right. Thank you. Absolutely. So I have this essay called Beautiful Shame, what we talk about when we talk about white writing. And the first thing that I talk about in that essay is I talk about the way that Gordon Lish edited Raymond Carver and the extreme reaction of anger and depression and sort of agony that Raymond Carver had before Gordon Lish published Cathedral, which was Carver's breakout book in the 1970s. And Carver clearly was having this kind of very intense response to Gordon Lish literally cutting away, cutting out so much of his work in the context of editing that book. And it was obviously a response that had to do with shame. And part of what I trace it back to is Carver's references in the early drafts of some of those stories, his references to his own upbringing in the Pacific Northwest and the specific resonances of the rural life that he lived in, which Lish just cut. He cut out all of that Mm -hmm. material. And, you know, what I'm interested in, in the concept of shame in the context of white shame has to do with the feeling of a pressure from the literary establishment, a kind of artistic aesthetic pressure to have a kind of disinterested and very surface presentation of one's identity without markers of class or ethnicity. So there's a kind of disinterested, high-minded, most refined, aesthetically accomplished approach, which essentially cuts all specific cultural, ethnic, linguistic, class references away. And that's what Lish accomplishes, and he's very forthright about this. So this is also something that can be seen in not just the work of somebody like, not just Don DeLillo's own writing, although that sort of self-conscious erasure of one's background and identity is all throughout his work. But it's something that is very apparent in the reception of Don DeLillo. Many of Don DeLillo's critics would say that one of the best things about his work is that it's not Italian, is that it doesn't betray... I think one of the... Franklin Trichier, one of his critics said, Don DeLillo's work betrays no vibration of his ethnic origins. 
So it's this sense that he's always been applauded for overcoming his greasy, spicy, you know, overly affected stereotypical Italianness and that critic's consciousness. You're listening to our conversation with Jess Rao, author of White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination. This is the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. And now back to our conversation with Jess Rao, author of White Flights. You have a quote in here that I, you know, it really knocked me out, which is, and I'm just going to read the beginning of it. To be a black writer in America in 2019 is to position oneself or to be positioned in a debate about blackness and Americanness. And, you know, that's obviously so true because no one expects you as a writer to write about whiteness in the same way. And your work is not interpreted through the position of being white in the same way that I think is true. And in the Obama era, there was so much discussion about the post-racial, that we were moving towards a place where race didn't matter. And then here we are. And then here we are. And it's like... Now that just seems naive. It seems like a fallacy. And it, and I guess I, at least from artists that I've spoken with, that there's a certain burden in always having to be in dialogue with race. That there's a reductiveness maybe to to always having your work interpreted only through that. Right. And that, that white writers don't have. So, right. But then at the same time, I think a lot of your book is writing about if you try to ignore it, if you don't, you know, talk about it. It just keeps on that you can never then go past it. Yeah. So, so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm wondering kind of where you think we're, we're going with that whole thing at present. Are we going to move past it or is that just a ridiculous idea? I mean, I, you know, so much of what's happened in the post-2016 era and the Trump era has made the Obama era look kind of ridiculous. And I think that's very sad. It's also, it's very telling and very revealing. I would say that during the Obama era, there was a lot of superficial assumptions that something had already been accomplished when really Obama's election just meant that something was, had the sort of potential to be accomplished, maybe you could say. I mean, I think right now we're in a, uh, we're in a situation of such national crisis a national emergency and um, such a crisis of racist violence at every level that um, I, I don't, I'm not quite sure how um, anybody could be writing fiction or creating movies or doing anything that doesn't address that. At some level, it might, it might be addressing it by sort of writing around it or ignoring it or kind of leave or, you know, deliberately, you know, having sort of echoes of it, but not directly referring to it. But, it, you know, I mean, we're in, we're at such a point of national crisis that, you know, right after the 2016 election, a lot of fiction writers simply wanted to abandon a lot of people I know simply wanted to give up what they were doing entirely and just thought fiction at the moment is not, um, is not valid. You know, um, I mean, my, my, my response to that is something that, you know, really comes from uh, one of my teachers, Charles Baxter, who said um, shortly after the Trump election said the basic thing that fiction writers need to be doing is simply preserving the small observations and memories of what this time was like, because in some ways that is the basic uh, the basic job of a fiction writer is the way we live now. This is, you know, a lot of people would object to this as kind of a realist fantasy. But one way of looking at fiction is to say fiction is a representation of the way we live now at the micro scale and at the macro scale. And, um, you know, and I think some writers are doing that. I think, you know, sometimes it takes a while for those books to come out. That's certainly part of the texture of the novel that I'm working on. You know, we're at a time of, you know, we're in an era of resurgent, explicit uh, white nationalism that's been embraced by a third of the American electorate. You know, a time of, this sounds like a sort of like a very um, almost hysterical thing to say, but a, kind, but a time of the Nazification, a significant part 
of the U.S. U.S. population, you know, at the time of national emergency. And, you know, in, I mean, in some ways, like, that, you know, that is, um, you know, writing in a time of crisis is, and write, making art in a time of crisis um, is extremely difficult. But at the same time, you know, we're experiencing this enormous artistic renaissance in the United States, primarily by people of color and by people who are engaging with uh, race and inequality in really profound ways, like this movie, The Last uh, Black Man in San Francisco that just came out, uh, which is actually, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's the, the, the director is white, but most of the main characters are, are black and they were yeah. close friends of the, of the director. So it's really, it's a collaborative project. That is just one of the most extraordinary movies I've seen in, in years and years. And the, you know, the, the well of material, you know, the extraordinary kind of art that's being produced, a TV show like Atlanta, which doesn't even look like TV, you know, you know, it doesn't seem like the TV of any era in the past. I mean, it's just, you know, we're living in really amazing uh, artistic times. I think it's important to note that as well. But I, I just to follow up on that, um, one question I had was, you know, I think what you say is right, but then, I, then there also seems to be this heightened sensitivity and maybe it's just, you know, an awareness and a reckoning around who's allowed to tell what story and what then right, counts as right. appropriation. And so you mentioned this movie that's by a white director um, about, you know, with a largely black cast and... Um, and you touch on this just really briefly uh, in the introduction, but, you know, the question of this Dana Schutz painting that was in the Whitney Biennial or uh -huh. Kenneth Goldsmith's appropriation of the Michael Brown autopsy. Right, right. And I was just wondering, like, what you make of those attempts that are obviously want to engage with race, but do you think they were misguided or do you think they were just interpreted wrong? I, I mean, I think it's important to look at those look at those cases separately because the responses of the artists and the kind of dialogue that sort of swirled around those, those cases were different. I mean, I think that the fundamental state that we've been in for the last decade or so is a, is a revival of a culture of really vigorous and sometimes radical critique that, hadn't really existed in the United States since the, probably since the 1970s. And for example, if you look at uh, Jeff Chang's amazing book, Who We Be, which came out uh, in 2014, um, he traces controversies about appropriation and who gets to tell uh, what story and who uses the N-word. These confrontations in the art world in the music world, he traces them, you know, going back to the 1960s and 70s. And it's really revealing to look at uh, how similarly these things crop up um, at these, you know, at these, what are, you know, really moments of, of, of crisis um, around race, which I think we've been in ever since the Black Lives Matter movement began in, in 2014, at the very least. I think, it, you know, in, in some cases, a controversy reveals um, that an artist really doesn't want to engage with the fundamental uh, issues at hand in a, you know, in a way that, in a way that actually begets conversation. I think that's absolutely the case with somebody like, like Kenneth Goldsmith. Um, it was somebody I, I knew uh, before that controversy happened and I was really profoundly shocked and disappointed by the way he responded. Um, and that he did it in the first place, and then that he he responded uh, the way that, the way in the dismissive uh, way that he way that he did. I also think you know, and the and the other thing I say in the introduction to the book is that I think it's very important to get beyond the feeling that in the world of art or in the world of, world of literature that race is something that should only come up in a situation of controversy or scandal or crisis. I think that if uh, white writers were just a little bit more familiar, more attuned to the deep and fundamental racialized nature of American culture and American literature, that they would be less surprised and less shocked when these questions came up. 
Mm-hmm. You know, if, if Toni Morrison's playing in the dark was on every MFA syllabus in the country, I think we would have a lot less of these kind of what you might call beginner level conversations mm-hmm. about these questions. Yeah. Just to wrap up, one of the things that I wanted to ask you to explain, well, I wanted you to talk about your childhood a little bit, but maybe we don't have time to do that. Um, so one of the things that I wanted you to explain... <laughs> oh, do, you, do, you have an, do you have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was hoping to turn this into a therapy session. Um, I, I, lo- I love that. The last question is, I want you to talk about your childhood. That's, that's um, I wish we had time to do that. But because I loved uh, your, I mean, your reading of the Annie Dillard um, sentence where she she writes about coming into herself while diving. Anyway, um, but I think maybe something that would be helpful to explain to listeners, what is white flight in this book? Oh, what is white flight? Yeah. Absolutely. So white flight as a demographic phenomenon um, really now has become uh, a cycle um, because, you know, the first part of white flight is, uh, a demographic movement of white Americans out of major urban cities that actually started before the beginning of the 20th century um, and then accelerated profoundly after the Second World War when the first, or not the, when I should say the second wave of American suburbs came into being, places like Levittown, um, and when uh, post-World War II um, more and more middle-class white families had the means to leave cities and move out into these newly built suburbs. Um, and then that was accelerated even more. And sort of the final step of the white flight demographically was after the uprisings and so-called riots of the 1960s the, uh, and the beginning of actual efforts to integrate American housing, the final sort of wave of white movement out of uh, major cities, places like Detroit, Baltimore, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, Washington, to some degree Chicago, Um, the movement of white people out of those cities, leaving the cities almost entirely black or almost entirely people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's, you know, that's the demographic movement of white flight. The cyclical nature of it is that, um, of course, as we all know, white flight has rebounded or sort of bounced back into uh, gentrification, which is the return of white pop- of relatively prosperous white populations to urban centers that have essentially been destroyed by uh, decades of neglect and decades of abandonment. And so those urban centers are essentially viewed as sort of raw space where you can build new condos and you know, you can improve the canal and make it into a kayaking center. And, you know, you have all the sort of familiar features of gentrification. Right. So that's the demographic, that's the demographic cycle of white flight. The other part of white flight that I talk about in the book is that um, beginning in the, especially in the late 1970s and really stretching all the way until the present, there's been this movement of the white imagination out of the American city, and especially, I'm talking about fiction, but you know, you could talk about other art forms as well. The movement of the white imagination into places where uh, people of color don't exist. So if you think about the enormous rise of popularity of novelists like Cormac McCarthy, Jim Harrison, Richard Ford, Annie Prue, um, Rick Bass, Uh, people like that who write these very wide-ranging novels about the wilderness, about the West, some of them set in the 19th century, some of them set in the present, you know, this this movement that begins at that time going out of cities, first into the suburbs, and then into these spaces, you know, that are many times, you know, sort of vacant spaces. And Anne Beattie is is a great, you know, almost a sort of, step by step, you, you can almost make a grid in Annie Ann Beattie's work uh, beginning in the 1970s with stories about New York City and then moving out to Greenwich and the suburbs of Westchester, the suburbs of New York City, and then moving out to places like Maine, Key West, Utah, uh, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's the imaginative white flight that 
makes up the sort of dual white flights in the title of the book. We should end with your childhood uh, because we brought it up. What did your family follow a some I you know when you write in the book that in some ways you did follow a somewhat similar trajectory right as you were growing up. Yes. Um, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I guess I'm I'm wondering when or how did you come to write this book then or think so much about race? What what, what were some of the defining moments um, that made you aware of this and especially in fiction? I mean, in your own fiction in the own way you write, you know, when did you really start thinking about this? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because when I first started as a fiction writer in my teens and early 20s, I was really drawn to the, um, what uh, the French call uh, l'école Montana, the school of Montana, you know, that is the, the, a lot of the writers I was just talking about, people like Raymond Carver and Richard Ford and Tobias Wolff and the kind of the, the so-called dirty realists of the 1980s. And I really thought that's what a white writer was supposed to be. And I quickly realized that I could, I just couldn't pull it off. You know, I was an East coast kid. Um, I was of a different generation. I was of a different sensibility and I just, I couldn't do it. I, I tried very hard and I couldn't do it. And I had a kind of crisis of conscience and a, a sense of just work stoppage. I couldn't write anymore. And it was at that moment, I, I was living in Hong Kong in my, in my early 20s, and then I moved back to go to MFA school at University of Michigan. And it was at that time that I read James Baldwin for the first time. And that was a really transformative experience for me, as I talk about in the book, actually listening to an interview with James Baldwin, where he said uh, the effort not to see the black man has become such an unconscious preoccupation for white Americans that I'm paraphrasing here, that it essentially paralyzes them. And I thought, uh, that is, you know, that is, that is, that is describing me. That's describing my artistic paralysis. And, um, that was the seed, I think of my interests, my sort of conscious interest and drive in the question of, you know, really two questions. First of all, how can, how does a white writer, um, address non-white people um, and, and, and address the subject of racism in fiction, but also the question and the, and the subject of racialization in fiction, but also the question of how did it get to be this way? How was it that I was taught, you know, as a child of the civil rights era for certain, how was it that I was taught an aesthetic of um, absolute normalized whiteness with no reference to people of color? Because that's really what I was taught. I was taught to ignore non-white people as subject matter. Very specifically, actually in the very first writing workshop I ever took when I was 17 years old. Um, I was told that very explicitly. I was told that, that the, the Confessions of Nat Turner, the novel The Confessions of Nat Turner by William Styron, created this huge scandal in the late 1960s. And for that reason, white American novelists shouldn't write about race. Mm. This is in 1992. Um, my, my teacher presented that as a fiat and I absorbed that lesson and carried it with me until James Baldwin sort of rose out of the grave and essentially said, you are full of shit. (laughs) And that was, uh, that was the, you know, that was the, um, you know, that was the beginning of the process for me that led to me writing your face and mine. And then also, and then led, led to, uh, to white flights. Well, this seems like a perfect place to end with um, James Baldwin telling all of us that we're full of shit. Thank you so much, Jess, for speaking with us. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. We've been speaking with Jess Rao. His latest book is called White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination. Thanks. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. 
Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 